There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted, Twisted Philly. Philly. Welcome back to another episode of Twisted Philly. I'm your host, Dina Marie. There's a case from Pennsylvania that we've been discussing in the Twisted Philly discussion group on Facebook, and I've had a number of listeners ask me if I would cover this story. It's not the first time I've covered a case that's currently in the media, but it is the first time I've covered a story from Pennsylvania without answers. There are allegations and assessments about what happened in this 30-year-old case, but it hasn't yet been solved. Investigators feel they're close to making an arrest, close to uncovering evidence that could provide answers about what happened to 30-year-old Milton, Pennsylvania resident Barbara Miller, who disappeared in July 1989. This isn't the first time police thought they solved Barbara Miller's disappearance. Thirteen years ago, the Pennsylvania State Police told local media in northeastern Pennsylvania they were weeks away from making an arrest. Yet no arrest was made. Evidence was recovered, but it wasn't enough to point them in the direction they needed to find Barbara Miller, nor were they able to bring her murderer into custody. In 2002, Barbara Miller was declared deceased by Northumberland County President Judge Charles, but the coroner never signed a death certificate. How do you handle that as the family of a missing person? She'd been missing for over 10 years at that point, and I understand why the courts would declare someone deceased in that situation. But that's the rational, clinical brain thinking. The emotional brain and the heart can't possibly agree with that decision. If your loved one hasn't been found, would you still hold out hope, even after 10 years? Would you after 20 years? How about after almost 30 years? In 2004, Barbara's son, Ed Miller, was interviewed for WNEP 16, the ABC affiliate serving Northeastern and Central Pennsylvania. Ed was about 30 years old. His mother, Barbara Miller, went missing on July 1, 1989, in Milton, Pennsylvania, when Ed was just 14. Ed Miller's fond memories of his mom are shrouded by her absence. Did you think your mom would just pick up and leave like that? No. Why not? She's never done it before. Investigators believe Miller was murdered. They tell Newswatch 16 they have a suspect, a man who lived in the area 15 years ago and still does today. Ed Miller thinks he knows who it is, even sees the man in public. Two weeks ago, Monday, I talked to him. And you ask him and he deters all the questions into a different direction. Police won't identify the man they're investigating for Miller's death, but say they could make an arrest in the coming weeks while they search for clues. The son struggles for answers. You muddle through and you manage. Fifteen years of it, I'm still here. He's missed his mom at a graduation, a marriage, the birth of children. You lose everything. With the promise that investigators are working full-time on the case, Miller says he looks forward to the day someone is held responsible so he can finish a tragic chapter from a long time ago. That was life. But I've started another one. I just need that one to end. Closure. So I can have a marker where she's at. 
I'll be happy. Milton is a small town about 50 miles north of Harrisburg. That puts it a little over two and a half hours away from Philadelphia. It's an old manufacturing town of only about 6,000 residents. The town will celebrate its bicentennial this year, and everyone is hoping there will be another cause to celebrate, solving Barbara Miller's cold case, which is almost 30 years old. On the morning of July 1st, 1989, 30-year-old Barbara Miller was dropped off at a bar in Milton. She had a change of clothes and a wedding gift with her when she was seen that morning at the bar, and they were items she needed for a wedding later that day. Barbara Miller was featured in photographs from the wedding, and items from that event were found in her apartment days after her disappearance. Guests say they saw her leaving the reception with wedding flowers in her hands. They claim she told them she was heading home to change, and she would meet them soon after for drinks. The bride, Barbara's friend Lori, expected to see Barbara later that night, but she never showed up. How many of us have done that? You go to a wedding, and when it ends, you make plans to meet up at a local bar or a restaurant to continue the celebration. If you live nearby, you probably want to stop home and change, get out of the formal attire, throw on some jeans and a t-shirt or maybe even a hoodie, get comfortable for an evening of laughter and well wishes for your friends who just tied the knot. Maybe you're married and it brings back memories of your own wedding. Or maybe you're single, like Barbara was, and you wonder whether marriage is in your future. Barbara Miller made it home to her apartment on Penn Street that night on July 1st. It was late. Her son, Ed Miller, was awake. He said goodnight to his mom and went to bed, never realizing that was the last time he would see his mother. Barbara was reported missing by her on-again, off-again boyfriend a former Sunbury police officer named Joseph Egan, whom everyone called Mike. And for the remainder of this episode, I'll refer to him as Mike Egan as well. Barbara's son, Ed, told police that she and Mike had an argument the day before the wedding on June 30th. Apparently, they argued about the wedding and whether or not Barbara would take Mike with her. Ultimately, she went alone. Mike Egan reported Barbara Miller missing three days after her disappearance on July 5th, 1989. Egan told police the last time he saw Barbara was late at night on July 1st when she got into a car with two male friends heading to a motorcycle rally. And here we are, 30 years later. Barbara's case is making national headlines. But there's a long road between 1989 and 2017. And I want to take you down that road. It's a road of dead ends, a road of starts and stops. It's the road that might lead to solving a 30-year-old cold case in a sleepy little town in northeastern Pennsylvania. It's reported that when Barbara Miller went missing, the Sunbury Police Department did everything possible to investigate her disappearance. There are over 600 pages of transcribed interviews going back over 25 years. Every possible piece of forensic and physical evidence was investigated. Although a person of interest was considered early on in the investigation, there was no credible evidence linking that person to Barbara's disappearance. It was only circumstantial, and prosecutors knew they wouldn't get a warrant, nor would they get a conviction against this person. After months, even years, of investigating, Barbara Miller's disappearance sat, and then it grew cold. 
Dag Stark, a retired Sunbury police detective, formed a special task force in 2002 to continue investigating Barbara Miller's disappearance, which was eventually ruled a homicide. One of the main areas of investigation in 2002 was Doty Mine, an abandoned lead and zinc mine out on Route 147 next to the Susquehanna River. Detective Stark had reason to believe Barbara Miller's body had been dumped in or around the abandoned mine. Every item the task force recovered from that mine, clothing, change, the sorts of items people drop without even realizing it, any kind of trash, anything and everything that could be checked for DNA, all of it was tested, and all of it came back negative. There was no evidence Barbara had ever been in the area of the abandoned mine. A little more than two weeks before she went missing, Barbara Miller contacted the police about receiving threats. Besides working in a factory and being a part-time bartender, Barbara also worked as a police informant, primarily reporting activities involving drug trafficking. Barbara received letters threatening to kill her if she continued talking to police. This sounds like a situation where you would want police involvement, someone to investigate the threats and ensure your safety, but Barbara told police she took care of the issue. Whether the person of interest on the Sunbury police radar back in the early 90s was someone Barbara Miller informed on, or if it was someone else, we don't know. As that case was an open investigation and still is, the police hadn't identified whom it was. There is someone else whose name has come up often in this investigation, 30 years ago and as recently as last week, and that's Barbara Miller's ex-boyfriend Mike Egan. So let's talk about what sort of a person Mike Egan was back in the 80s. Mike Egan was a member of the Sunbury Police Force until he was charged with criminal offenses, filed in three separate informations. In January 1981, Mike Egan was convicted of theft by unlawful taking, theft by receiving stolen property, theft by extortion, and theft by failure to make a required deposition. Oh, that is a mouthful. Mike Egan learned of a robbery at the Mahanoy and Menango Telephone Company in Herndon, Pennsylvania. There were two men, one named Mark Bolig and the other named Kenneth Merrill, who stole over $30,000 from the phone company. Egan questioned them, together and separately. Then during an interview at the Sunbury Police Station, Mike Egan told Mark Bolig he knew about the robbery. And he said if Bolig would turn over whatever money was left from the heist, Egan wouldn't arrest him. Mark Bolig left the police station. He went home and got the remainder of the cash left over from the robbery. He brought it to Mike Egan back at the police station. Egan was also charged with hindering apprehension of prosecution, obstructing administration of the law, and aiding consummation of a crime. Another mouthful. While he was extorting money from Mark Bolig, Mike Egan told Kenneth Merrill, the other person who helped rob that telephone company, that a search warrant was being prepared to search his home. Merrill had already spent most of his share of the robbery money, so there was nothing there that he could give Mike Egan. But there were other illegal substances in his home, LSD and pot. Mike Egan and Kenneth Merrill went to Merrill's house. They got there before the Sunbury police showed up with their warrant, and Merrill got the box of drugs out of the house. Mike Egan knew what was in the box, yet he didn't arrest Kenneth Merrill for possession of a controlled substance. This added up to information number two and his second set of charges. The third incident happened while Mike Egan was in jail. Now remember, this guy was a cop. Kenneth Merrill was also in jail, not for robbing the telephone company. Those charges weren't yet filed. He was in jail for robbing a beer distributor. Apparently, this guy just couldn't help himself and any place of business was ripe for getting ripped off by Kenneth Merrill. 
While they were in jail together, Mike Egan told Kenneth Merrill to contact the guy who helped him rob the beer distributor, which was a different guy than the one who helped him rob the telephone company. And Mike Egan asked Merrill to convince this guy not to testify. Egan also told Merrill not to testify himself about the telephone company robbery or tell the police anything about the conversations he'd had with Kenneth Merrill or Mark Bolig. Remember the conversations where he said, give me the money that's left over from the robbery and you won't go to jail? For these conversations, Mike Egan was charged with obstructing administration of the law, again, criminal attempt of hindering apprehension, again, criminal attempt of aiding consummation of a crime, and criminal solicitation of obstructing administration of law. Holy shit, that is a lot of charges to be brought against one person, and it wasn't in one trial. These were three separate trials. Egan appealed the charges. He claimed double jeopardy because he was tried with similar or the same charges for different incidents. However, all incidents were connected to the same crime, the conversations with Marilyn Bullock. Mike Egan's appeal was denied in September 1982. His attorneys appealed again, and the denial was upheld by the Pennsylvania State Superior Court on August 10, 1984. Mike Egan went to jail and served six years. He was released in 1988 and soon thereafter started dating Barbara Miller. That was Mike Egan, a cop extorting money from criminals, a cop hiding drugs. Soon after reporting Barbara Miller as missing, Mike Egan moved into her apartment on Penn Street in Milton. For a while, he helped care for her teenage son. He drove around the town of Milton in her car, although he claimed it was his. And he got on with his life while police asked the public for assistance, clues, anything that could help find Barbara Miller. Initially, the police treated Barbara's disappearance as voluntary, although her family said she would never have left her son like that. She'd never disappeared for days or weeks at a time in the past. Why would she suddenly leave now and leave behind her car, all of her personal belongings? None of it made sense. By mid-1990, the Sunbury police changed their approach, and they treated Barbara Miller's disappearance as a homicide. Is there anything that could have been done differently in those first few days after Barbara disappeared if the police hadn't considered it a voluntary disappearance? They knew she received death threats from drug dealers. Had this been treated as an abduction, would this case still be unsolved almost 30 years later? It's unfair of me to ask these questions. I know that. A 30-year-old single woman, sure, it's entirely possible she split for a few days to get away from the commitments of being a single mother, work, a nasty boyfriend, being a police informant. Just thinking about all of that makes me feel stressed out. So in fairness to the Sunbury police, I need to consider their perspective and the fact that they've never given up on finding Barbara Miller. They just didn't have anywhere else to look. Mike Egan wasn't a member of the Sunbury police force when he and Barbara Miller dated, but the police were still very much aware of their relationship. Besides the threats Barbara received from what she believed were local gang members, she was also threatened by Mike Egan. Barbara claimed during a breakup before her disappearance that Mike threatened her with physical violence. He stalked her. Although in 1989 in upstate Pennsylvania, I don't know that it would have been considered stalking back then. He watched her in her apartment through binoculars. He sent her threatening letters. He threatened to kill her. She'd even gone to the police about him. And the other letters, the threats from drug dealers and local gangs, Barbara claimed to have information about a 1986 murder of a local man named Rocky Wolf, who was beaten to death over a drug deal. Based on my research through old newspapers and news reports from upstate Pennsylvania, it seems there were a number of people who were out to get Barbara Miller. 
Whether she was abducted and likely murdered because of information she'd already shared with police, or information she was about to share just before she disappeared, or because of a difficult relationship with her ex-boyfriend, Mike Egan, there was never enough evidence to bring charges against anyone. Now, I already mentioned the special task force that started in 2002 by former Sunbury police detective Deg Stark. That group worked for over two years on Barbara Miller's case. In July 2004, police claimed they had a suspect they were investigating. As you heard in the audio clip earlier in this episode, they even said they might have been weeks away from an arrest. Barbara's son, Ed Miller, thought he knew who the suspect was, even though he didn't name him. And it was someone still living in Milton someone Ed saw and talked to on a somewhat regular basis. They have a suspect, a man who lived in the area 15 years ago and still does today. Ed Miller thinks he knows who it is, even sees the man in public. Two weeks ago, Monday, I talked to him. And you ask him and he deters all the questions into a different direction. But nothing came of those suspicions 13 years ago. There was no arrest in 2004. In 2008, police searched a home in Lithia Springs, Pennsylvania, a residence where Barbara Miller's former boyfriend, Mike Egan, lived. If evidence was recovered, that wasn't communicated to the public, and no arrests were made. In 2015, a group of Northumberland County officials formed what they called an investigative alliance to reopen Barbara Miller's case. This alliance was formed by former Detective Deg Stark, who led the investigation in 2002, County Coroner Jim Kelly, and District Attorney Tony Matulwitz. One of the DA's campaign promises when he was elected in 2015 was to focus on solving Barbara's disappearance. Unfortunately, soon after this alliance was formed, a lack of resources hindered their efforts to increase attention on the investigation. In 2016, Barbara Miller's missing persons case received much-needed revitalized attention when Tim Miller, who is no relation to Barbara, took over as chief of police in Sunbury in July. When Tim Miller stepped in, he promised to investigate a number of cold cases in Northumberland County, including the disappearance of Barbara Miller. During an interview in November 2016, Sunbury Administrative Police Chief Miller said, Upon coming to Sunbury in July, I've had the opportunity to speak to numerous people regarding issues facing our department. One of those issues is the disappearance of Barbara Miller. As law enforcement officers, we are truth seekers. None of us are satisfied when a case goes cold, and we still haven't discovered the truth. With the holidays upon us and a new year right around the corner, it is important that we remember those who are no longer with us. One of my goals for the new year is to take a hard look at this case, to ensure every resource at this department's disposal has been exhausted in our search for the truth. One of those resources Chief Miller referred to was a man named Kenneth Maines, a detective from Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Maines left the Williamsport Police Department to help other departments around the country with cold cases. He does that through an organization he founded called the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases, a nonprofit volunteer organization dedicated to solving cold cases around the country. Chief Miller, along with Ken Maines and others, began by revisiting the case files for Barbara Miller. They reviewed everything they had and then they turned to the public for help. On May 9th of this year, Chief Miller launched the Barbara Miller Cold Case Facebook page. When he talked about changes in technology, 
In the almost 30 years since Barber disappeared, he wasn't only talking about forensic science and DNA testing. He was also talking about the power of social media. Within one day, there were 300 followers, and today there are over 2,000. Calls and tips began pouring in almost as soon as the page went up. Just three days after launching the Facebook page, Chief Miller reported to Penn Live he'd received leads from people who seemed to have what he called good information about the 1989 disappearance of Barbara Miller. At 9.40 a.m. on June 7, 2017, police began searching a duplex at 751 North Front Street in Milton, Pennsylvania. The property was roped off with caution tape. Whether this search was the result of a lead from the Facebook page, the police didn't confirm one way or another. In the search warrant for the property, police were searching for the remains of Barbara Miller, and the suspect named in that search warrant was her ex-boyfriend, Mike Egan. Egan was the person of interest back in 1990. He was the person of interest in 2004. A prior residence of his was searched in 2008, and in June 2017, he was formally named as a suspect in Barbara Miller's homicide. The director of anthropology and forensics from Mercyhurst University was on the scene with police. And as the day progressed, Barbara Miller's family arrived at North Front Street, her adopted sister, Susan Zimmerman, her friend, Lori Wand, whose wedding back in 1989 was one of the last places anyone saw Barbara alive. We're going to bring on now live Sunbury Police Chief Tim Miller. Chief, we understand this may be connected to the 1989 cold case homicide involving 30-year-old Barbara Miller. What can you tell us? That's correct. Uh, basically, uh, most people realize I opened up a, a Facebook page, uh, Barbara Miller Cold Case, um, in an effort to try to regenerate some new leads. Uh, things developed very rapidly upon launch of that uh, Facebook page, and we're here today for, uh, for hopefully what will be uh, some resolution for the family of Barbara Miller. What I've done is I reopened the case. I've been spending about six weeks uh, reading over the 6,000 pages of investigative notes, uh, just working through very methodically in combination with the Facebook page uh, and following the evidence, and it's led me here to 751 North Front Street. Can you tell us, do you believe she was a murder victim? Could a suspect still be in this area? Uh, I absolutely believe that we're dealing with a homicide, uh, according to the evidence that I've uh, you know, combed through. Um, I do believe the suspect is still local, um, and uh, my goal here today is, number one, to, to locate the remains of uh, Barbara Miller and to bring the person responsible to justice. Sunbury police suspected Barbara's remains could be on that property, buried somewhere outside, or perhaps entombed in the basement. Why were police at this particular house, and why now? Well, Chief Tim Miller said one of the first things he and the investigative team would do was start with the existing case files, go back through every interview, every report, every tip and clue, and reevaluate all of it. As a result of that work, he found a common thread in the case files, references at least six of them to the possibility Barbara Miller was buried somewhere at 751 North Front Street. This wasn't the first time someone suspected Barbara's remains were at that address. In 2009, the same reports were made to the Sunbury police, but no one investigated those claims. While we don't yet know if Barbara's remains were indeed at that location, the possibility floated around Milton for eight years. It was in the case file. There was also a confidential informant who came forward sometime after the Facebook page was launched who was also referenced in the search warrant. 
Chief Miller also found a report from 2004 in Barber's case files, stating Mike Egan bragged about burying a body inside the wall of a home. People associated with Mike Egan and his sister, Kathy Reitenbach, made remarks over the years about unpaid drug debts, saying if people didn't pay their debts, they'd wind up like Barbara Miller. All of this was in the cold case files for Barbara Miller's disappearance. And then there's rumors that floated around Milton that Mike Egan would drive past his sister's house years ago when she lived there, saying he was going to visit his old lady. Yeah, he's a real fucking class act, this guy. Although the property had been sold numerous times since 1989, 751 North Front Street once belonged to Mike Egan's sister, Kathy. According to that confidential informant mentioned in the search warrant, when he asked Kathy about Barbara's disappearance years ago, she was visibly shaken, incredibly emotional, and told this informant she may have been one of the last people to see Barbara alive. In an interview, Chief Miller said if Kathy Reitenbach was one of the last people to see Barbara Miller alive, does that mean she was the first person to see Barbara dead? On June 7th, investigators, forensic experts, and construction crews searched the property through the evening. Cadaver dogs were brought in, and jackhammers. The search at the property on North Front Street went on for six days. On June 9th, an entire section of wall from the basement was removed. Construction vehicles were brought onto the property and hoisted a massive section of concrete wall to be taken away for investigation. According to police, it appeared as if there was a hand-mixed section of concrete that had been added to the existing basement structure. The same was said about a section of the basement floor. There were sections of concrete on the walls and the floor of that basement that weren't original to the property. They looked out of place, and it was these portions of concrete that were removed from the home. Police first discovered these out-of-place concrete structures when they did a walkthrough of the property a few weeks before obtaining the search warrant. On June 12th, police secured a sealed warrant, again for the property at 751 North Front Street, and press conferences were stopped. Up until that point, the police were sharing information with the public, certainly not details about what they were uncovering, but they at least let the community know they were searching the property for possible links to Barbara Miller's disappearance. The press conferences ended on June 12th, and the search ended on June 13th. The town of Sunbury paid almost $14,000 to repair the house on North Front Street, and I was surprised it didn't cost them more when you look at the enormous concrete slabs removed from that home. I can't imagine what it looked like inside the house once the investigators were finished. Just about two months later, on August 9th, Sunbury police went to Barbara Miller's former home on Penn Street, the apartment she shared with her son Ed when she disappeared in 1989. And if any evidence was recovered, that information hasn't been shared with the public. The next day, August 10th, police and underwater dive crews recovered evidence related to the case in a pond along Route 45, about three miles from Milton. This yellow container holds evidence in the 1989 Barbara Miller cold case homicide, according to Sunbury police. Investigators spent around eight hours searching this pond along Route 45 near Lewisburg. The search centers around the 1989 homicide of former Sunbury resident Barbara Miller. Police tell Newswatch 16 after months of interviews, the next phase of their investigation led them here. They found the particular piece of evidence they were looking for and carried it away inside this yellow container. Police would not say exactly what that evidence is, only that it was a container buried in the pond. 
Last night, Sunbury Police and a state police forensic unit were at the last home Barbara Miller lived in in Sunbury. Authorities took pieces of evidence from that house, too. Over the past few months, police have done many interviews and say their investigation led them here. And then about two weeks later, on August 21st, Chief Miller from Sunbury Police alerted the media investigators found wood chips and what they called other unexplained materials inside the concrete slabs removed from the Front Street house in Milton. After talking with general contractors, the police believed there would be no reason for wood chips to be found in cement. Now, I'm not a contractor. I've only mixed cement once in my life when my dad and I were installing a tile floor in a family room addition we built on our house when I was a teenager. I can tell you when I went to the tile store, the guy who sold me all the supplies didn't sell me any wood chips. And when I think of friends who are contractors and do cement work and a patio I had installed about 18 years ago with a giant cement mixer in my backyard, there was no wood chips. There's absolutely no reason for wood chips, tiny fragments of wood that's been run through a chipping machine, probably smaller than garden mulch, to be present in cement. And the odd thing is, those rumors of nasty things Mike Egan would say as he drove around town for the last 28 years, one of them was that if he ever killed somebody, he'd run their body through a wood chipper to help get rid of the evidence. Two of the world's foremost forensic scientists are now part of the investigative team in Sunbury. Dr. Henry Lee, whom you probably recognize from the O.J. Simpson trial, Lacey Peterson's murder, John Benet Ramsey's case, and Dr. William Bass. He's a former University of Tennessee professor and founder of the University of Tennessee Anthropological Research Facility, also known as the Body Farm. And that's where it stands today. Those two forensic experts, plus the Northumberland County coroner, James Kelly, Corporal Travis Bremigan, Corporal Brad Hare, Officer Brad Slack, plus Chief Tim Mullen, make up the core investigative team, and countless other law enforcement professionals who've worked this case off and on for decades. During each interview, Chief Miller says they're closer to solving Barbara's murder, her disappearance, arresting someone, and getting justice for Barbara's family, especially her son, Ed Miller. Every year that passes without knowing what happened to his mother is harder than the year before. As you heard Ed say in the clip at the top of the episode, he wants a marker he can visit. He wants to know what happened to his mother. Will this case end with Mike Egan being arrested for Barbara Miller's murder? He's the suspect that was named in search warrants this summer, and it seems he's the only suspect. He may have been the primary suspect for the last 28 years but there was never enough evidence to charge him or convict him. I'll continue following this case in the coming weeks, and like you, I hope Ed Miller, Barbara's sisters Suzanne and Lynn, her friend Lori, everyone in Sunbury gets answers soon. They've waited far too long. That's it from me. As always, thank you for listening. Ciao for now, Twisters.